All right. Well, so today is our last lesson uh, on the book of Ruth. So this is lesson number five, and this is the end of the book of Ruth. And I know we're all really sad to see it go, uh, but I've really enjoyed teaching this book, and, and I hope you guys have gotten a lot out of it. Uh, the one thing I really wanted to make sure we got through these five weeks was I want you to be able to understand the gospel really well. I want you to be able to understand exactly how to articulate the gospel, uh, how to understand the gospel, and, and I think the gospel shines so clearly through this book of Ruth. Now, that being said, what I want you to be able to do is that later on in life, when you leave this class, whenever you go out a month from now, two months from now, three months from now, uh, whenever you're thinking about the gospel, I hope you can kind of replay this story of Ruth and understand from the story of Ruth what the characters kind of singed into your mind, written on your heart, that you can, you can see Boaz, you can see Ruth, you can see Naomi, you can see those people in your mind, and you can articulate the gospel by telling that story. That's really what we want to be able to do. I think that's honestly what God was, one of the major reasons he put this text in the Bible was to show us something that was going to come a thousand plus years in the future, giving us that promise and helping us understand that when that promise was delivered, that that's something he had told us about so long ago. So let's use these characters to really inform us of the gospel. We're going to finish out the lesson today using chapter 4, and I'm going to go through that one pretty quickly and really help you understand the last piece of the gospel puzzle that's put together in that chapter. Uh, Then we've got kind of three sections, if you see on your notes, that's the first section of our lesson today. The second section, I'm going to hit the genealogy that's shown at the end of this chapter. I love the genealogy. There's a couple of really cool little facts in the genealogy. I just want to make sure you understand why that's put there uh, and kind of see how God's been orchestrating events all through time in the, in the past and in the present. Uh, and then lastly, what we're going to do, we're going to do things a little differently than we normally do. I want to give you guys more time than we normally spend at your groups today. And we're going to go through the, the key essentials of the gospel message. Really make sure we can all articulate the gospel message and try to see if we can point through to where in the, the story of Ruth, going back to chapter 1 through 4 here, all the chapters, where do we see the gospel come through so we can make sure that that's really what we end on here in this lesson. So to get kicked off, I want to start with that first section of our lesson. Talk about redemption uh, by, by really finishing out this chapter. So let me go into chapter 4, and I'm going to read and just kind of stop through a couple of times to make sure I explain the text. So it says this, starting chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, and if you guys remember, where we left off last week was that Boaz has promised Ruth that she will be redeemed. But he's let her know that there is a kinsman redeemer who is, who is nearer into the family line than he is. And so he's got to go to that person first and give him the right to redeem Ruth. But if he does not, Boaz promises that, she, that he himself will redeem Ruth. So, so Ruth goes home to Naomi. They're all really excited. Naomi assures Ruth that the matter will be settled that day. And now we transition to the next part of the story where Boaz is going out into the, uh, the town square there right by the gates to, do, to conduct business. So here he goes, chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, 
Buy it in the presence of all those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, and he said, talking about the man he's talking to, the first kinsman redeemer. He said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also will acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now pay attention here right now. So what's happening, just to make sure we're all clear, remember this whole kinsman redeemer thing, God set this up in the law uh, partly to make sure that vulnerable people in society would be cared for in these type of instances, but also to make sure that, that the heirs uh, of those who have passed on could, could be maintained, that, that their rights, that their property could be maintained. And so Boaz is saying, look, Naomi's come back. She's going to sell this land. We need to keep this in the family. Do you want to buy the land? And this guy seems pretty interested in purchasing this land. He's probably getting it at a family discount, I would assume. Uh, he seems pretty intrigued to buy the land. And remember, he's surrounded by the town elders. They're, they're at the gate, which that means what it says. If you think about an old Jewish village, uh, you go in and they've got a gate system in place. Some of the nicer ones had a double gate system in place. Some of the even nicer ones kind of had steps that you would have to run up to be able to get to the gate system. And those steps were even, they were uneven steps so that you couldn't charge at full speed up at the gates from an invading army. So, but at those gates is where really the city business would get taken care of. It's almost like how we would go to a courthouse today to take care of civil affairs. They would have the elders of the city gather at the, at the gates and they would conduct business. So this guy seems pretty interested in buying the land. Uh, and, but then when Boaz tells him, oh, by the way, if you redeem this, you're going to also get, Naomi, you're gonna get Ruth, the Moabite widow, and you want to be able to perpetuate the name of the dead. Then the Redeemer says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I cannot redeem it. So I want to stop right there for just a couple minutes at your table. I want you to think, why is it that this guy is going to buy the land whenever he thinks it's only the land? Then when he hears about Ruth, who's a young, attractive Moabite widow, apparently, from all we've heard about Ruth. Seems like a hardworking woman, does well, well well-respected in society. When he hears about Ruth, why is it that he says, I can't redeem it? Talk about that for a minute, and uh, we'll come back, see if anyone can crack this case. I see a couple groups that look like they probably cracked this, this case. Anyone want to take a stab at why this guy wouldn't take on the right of redemption once he hears that there's a, there's a beautiful young widow involved? Yeah, so, concern, so the concern is on the property rights of the inheritance. You, you're going to get somebody who is not of Israel potentially owning property. That's a good, good thought. Now, that being said, we, we see other instances in the Bible where where foreigners come in and they become Israelites, right? Kind of a process go through to become Israelites. And then as they marry into the family and they have descendants, they kind of viewed as part of the original clan. Uh, that's a good point. This does have to do with property rights. Any other thoughts on this? Well, it's because everybody gets less money now because he married her as children are. And her children, they're going to want part of that. Yeah. See, that's where I thought too. When I originally read this, that was my thought was that, 
And, and what he's saying is it's going to dilute everyone's weighted average share of the property. So if, if he ends up having kids with Ruth, he then has to re-segregate out all of his inheritance. And if that messes with the weighted average of what his sons were going to get to begin with. So that was my original thought, too. So I, I went on as our research is a little bit more. And what's, what, what happens here, though, is you have to go back to what this law was originally intended to do. And the law was, was not necessarily a way for us to keep it in the entire family, although it's part of it. The law here was really trying to make sure you could perpetuate the inheritance of the, of, of the, the son who has died, right? If, if, if you've got a family with two brothers and one brother dies and leaves a widow, you want the brother who's died named to be able to live on. It's, you're, you're creating an inheritance for the, the, the brother who has died. So what happen, what's happening here in this text is whenever uh, this, this redeemer, this kinsman redeemer who's closer than Boaz, is talking at first, he's saying, okay, I can marry Naomi, and I can buy this land, and this land is my land, and Naomi's probably too old at this point in time to, to have kids. Naomi's never going to have any kids, and so what I buy is mine. That land's going to be with me for forever, and I can split it up to my kids and do with it however I like. Now, whenever he finds out, though, that Ruth is in the picture and he's got to marry Ruth, well, Ruth could probably have kids. And then all that land that he buys, if Ruth has kids, that land doesn't go to him. He redeems Ruth with the hope that that he can maintain the inheritance of Ruth's original husband in the clan of Elimelech. So all the property is going to go to Ruth's sons. So he doesn't get to keep any of it. His kids don't get to keep any of it. So he's going to pay a price for that land. He's going to buy the land from Naomi and redeem Naomi and Ruth through this situation. But if Ruth has kids, he gets nothing for it. Does that make sense? He's buying it and pretty much giving the land away to Ruth's children. And so for this kinsman redeemer, this price was just too much for him to pay. Uh, the, the opportunity that may come down the road where he doesn't get to take part in what he has paid for, he goes, I can't do that. And so it gives a whole other dynamic here, really, to looking at what it is that Boaz is offering to do. Boaz is a worthy man in, society, in, in the culture. He seems to have what he needs, but he, he's not flaunting it in any way. Uh, he is setting this up to where he's going to lose something, right? He, this isn't just him acquiring more property, uh, kind of like you do in a Monopoly game where your properties become investments and can pay for themselves. He's acquiring something knowing what he is paying is going to go to the use of somebody else. It's a big price that he's willing to pay. So if you think about this in terms of the story being revealed like we've been doing all through this book, think about this as Jesus on the cross Whenever he pays the price for our sins, that's a price that only God was willing to pay. It's also a price that only God was able to pay, right? We all have to pay the price for sin. Somehow a price has to be paid. And that's something about our religion that's a bit difficult to understand at times. A holy God, a perfect God cannot allow sin, cannot allow no judgment for sin. So a price has to be paid, and the way we understand it is either we will pay the price in eternity or Christ pays that price. But whatever it is, we are not able to, to buy back our own redemption. We are not able to pay that price. Ruth in this scenario and Naomi in this scenario are not able to do what is necessary to pay the price. Only Boaz is willing to do it, and in this situation, only Boaz will do it, right? 
that, that is what we mean by, you know, I think it's very interesting whenever I, I talk to my kids and their limited understanding of everything and they know that Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins, you know, that's a difficult concept to really get, right? We, the, the word that's used in the Bible for this is propitiation, and which really means God's wrath has to be quenched, right? The, the, the wrath of God is necessary. It's something that when, when God comes into conflict with sin, his wrath cannot be quenched by anything but some sort of judgment. That's why we see animals sacrificed in the Old Testament to really appease the wrath of the gods. We, we, we see that kind of ingrained in our, in our societies over time. And in this point in time, that wrath was appeased through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. Right? So, so I want you to see this final part of the story of Boaz uh, was that he was willing to pay that final price, that ultimate price that only Boaz could pay. So as we keep going through this text, you're going to find some pretty interesting customs that occur to make sure this redemption story occurs. Um, the, the sandals are taken off feet to these guys, and they have witnesses all around them to show that Boaz is paying the price, and he's redeeming Ruth and Naomi in this situation. As we go forward this, though, we pretty much find that uh, if you go to verse... If you go to verse 11, it says, after they've done this ceremony in, in the place of the gates, it says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. You know, may you act worthily. May, may, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You know, this is a blessing from all the people in Bethlehem trying to say, what you have done is great. May this be a blessing to your house. You know, the, the reference to Rachel and Leah is going back to the wives of Jacob, you know, who were able to, to really develop the 12 tribes of Israel who all of Israel came out of, right? They're trying to say, may, may, may the offspring be plenty. May your house be blessed. Uh, you're seeing the town really come together to really show a great appreciation for what has happened here uh, in this story. I want to transition here to really section two and talk just a little bit about the genealogy. Uh, one, because it's just kind of cool. You know, it's just some interesting things that come up in this genealogy. So you see it start out here in this text. Whenever they say in verse 12, it says, And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So if there's any just fantastic Old Testament scholars in here, or if you've just spent a lot of time in the book of Genesis, uh, you'll know this story whenever you hear it. And if you go back to Genesis, I believe it's chapter 38, if I'm not mistaken. I won't read the text today, but I just want to tell the story. Um, we see Judah, who is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, right? If you kind of think about it, you know, Abraham had Isaac and Esau. Uh, the blessing passes to Isaac. You know, Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has the 12 sons. Uh, Judah being one of those 12 sons. And we see Judah come up all the time. In the uh, Old Testament in particular, uh, because Judah is where, you know, the, the tribe of Judah is where we have Jerusalem. You know, so you'll see, you know, Judah became the southern tribe of it, or the southern kingdom of Israel. Uh, that's really a main play here. We see the, the line of David come out of Judah, a uh, very important part. So now Judah has an interesting thing happen. Uh, we see another 
kinsman redeemer situation come up with Judah where he has a couple sons uh, who have wives. Sons die. The other sons refuse to marry the wife of the one that they should. And then you have this kind of desperate daughter-in-law named Tamar who is really left out in the lurch. You kind of see the exact same story of Ruth playing out with Tamar a long, long time before this happens. The story gets a little weird, and, and, and so it's, it doesn't get the story of Balaam weird, uh, but it does get a little weird. So Tamar, uh, who's a bit desperate, decides that she has no one to redeem her. She needs to find some way to be redeemed, and, and no one's stepping up to the plate. No one's maintaining their obligation. And so she finds her father-in-law, Judah, traveling on the way on the road, and she disguises herself as a prostitute. Uh, and for some reason, uh, Judah does what people do with prostitutes uh, at times throughout our world history, and Tamar becomes pregnant. So Tamar, um, the people let Judah know that Tamar has become pregnant. Now, now Judah at this point in time doesn't know that the prostitute that he has, he has um, had relations with is his daughter-in-law. They've let him know that, hey, your daughter-in-law is, isn't married and she's pregnant, and that becomes a big issue. And before anything's done to her, she lets Judah know who the daddy is. And Judah freaks out a little bit, uh, and we end up getting this, uh, some children out of this relationship, one of which is a man named Perez. So when you look at this and it says, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, that wasn't the most sanctifying relationship that occurred in the Bible. Uh, we have some interesting things that occur on this. If you trace the house of Perez all the way down, you'll find that the vast majority of the people who are living in Bethlehem at this point in time can trace their exact ancestry to Perez. Almost all of them were descendants of Perez. Uh, so, so everyone in this town would have known this story well, would have talked about it really well, and would always be referring back to it. So, interesting way that they came about. So, that's where we start with the genealogy here uh, of, of, of Boaz. So, another character comes up in this genealogy, though, as you kind of trace down the road. And if you guys remember, there's another story with another prostitute um, in the Bible that we've talked about a little bit in here. Does anyone remember a story of a prostitute in the book of Je- or Joshua uh, that you can remember? Anyone just... Remember a story of a prostitute in the book of Joshua? Rahab. Rahab. So the story of Rahab pretty much goes like this. You've got, you've got Joshua is going to lead everyone into the promised land, and he sends out spies to the land of Jericho. And the spies go in, and they go into the home of this person named Rahab, who happens to be a prostitute. And the people of Jericho come, and they say, hey, there's some Israelites with you, and she hides them and makes sure that they aren't found. And so they're very appreciative that, that she hides them from, from, the, um, from the people of Jericho. And they pretty much say, you know, what can we do for you? And she makes them promise that they will spare her life and the, and the life of her family, anyone who's in her household, whenever Israel comes through and conquers Jericho. Because she's heard of what happened. She heard of what happened in the story of Balaam that we talked about a few weeks ago. So Rahab, whenever Joshua leads the people into Jericho, um, they keep their promise to Rahab. And as the town's falling, they go and they find Rahab, they find the people in her household, and they bring her out. And let me just read you this text uh, from the book of Joshua of what happens in this story. It's just kind of fun. 
It says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And when you did to the two king Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og. Remember those battles we talked about with Moses, right? As, they, as, as, as Balak and those guys start to get really worried about what's happening, and they call Balaam down to, to curse the people. She goes, we've heard about about what happened. We know what's getting ready to play out here. It says, Whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth and beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. And deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. If you guys remember back in the very first lesson we did here on Ruth, we talked about this phrase, deal kindly. Uh, we talked about the word hesed, right, to, to have this self-sacrificial love, to do something that does not need to be required. We see that type of relationship playing out here with Rahab and the spies, both of them making sure they're taking care of each other, not knowing exactly what's going to happen in return. And later on in the book of Joshua, you will see when Rahab is spared and her family is spared, it says, and she now lives with the Israelites to this day. Well, what's interesting is what happens to Rahab later on is that she marries a man. She marries a man named Salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N, like the fish. And I'm just looking at my genealogy chart. So Rahab marries this man, and they happen to have a kid. Does anybody know what their, who their kid was? Boaz. They have a son named Boaz. Boaz, the same redeemer who redeems Ruth. So I just want you to see here that if we first start looking at this genealogy and we just go back in time, we see something pretty cool. All the stories we talked about with the story of Balaam, the story of Moses, the story of Joshua, uh, everything that occurred, everything had been orchestrated by God. He had taken the faith of some very interesting figures. He had taken the faith of prostitutes uh, to really show what he can do through, through this world, what he can do through people who just give him faith, right? Rahab becomes, you know, just a part of of the people of Israel. She becomes a follower of God. She professes her faith in God here in this story in one of the most beautiful ways in the Old Testament. It's one of the first professions of faith that you really even see in the Old Testament done the way that she does. So we see God use some really unusual characters. And then then if we look, if if we stop right now with Ruth and Boaz, we then see how this text ends up. And it says that Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed, which means servant of the Lord. Obed then has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son named David. So God, God is at work all through this. And for me, it's a very, very good reminder. Uh, It's a very, very good reminder that we're all just playing a part in the work that God is doing. A lot of times we really can feel like we are, we are, um, everything all right? Back there? Oh, okay, okay. Okay, no, well, welcome. Let's <laughs> make sure you guys are all right. Um, we are all playing a part in God's story. 
So, so if we think about this, we can really trust that our God is a God who keeps his promises, something we've talked about a lot. And I love going back through time and then looking forward in time. And at this very moment with Ruth and Boaz, we can see that it's the faith of Ruth and Boaz both that God is using. But this isn't where he started his work. You know, he started his work way before, and it's going to end way after. He's going to do incredible things through David. He's going to work through the Davidic line, and he's going to bring the Messiah. You know, there's all kinds of incredible things God is doing, but it happens on both sides of history. Right? It's just a good comfort that we can have that God is always at work. Really cool family line. So if we think about you know, when this story of Ruth was written and how the people would have used it, they would have been referring back to this, especially during the days of King David. They would have wanted people to know how long God had been at work. They would have been connecting the dots, just like we've tried to connect the dots, all the way back to Balaam, all the way back to the original covenant with Abraham, all the way back to how this all played out to give people confidence that the promises of God will always be held, especially in the times when things aren't going too well. Uh, when the people are exiled from Babylon or exiled to Babylon, uh, when the people are dealing with the Assyrian invasion, when all these things are happening, they're just bringing people down. It's very comforting to always look back on the promises of God. So that gets into the genealogy. The last thing I would say about this this book of Ruth is if you remember how desperate Naomi seemed in this story, uh, whenever she had gone to Moab and her husband and her sons had died. Uh, she kept saying that she had left Bethlehem full and she had come back empty. You know, even though she had gone to a land that was hopefully going to be abundant in grain and give them a life that they wanted, she came back absolutely empty. And she, she, she prayed a prayer of lament to God, uh, and he, he continues to answer that prayer through here. So I just wanted to read real quick what it was we see happen with Naomi after that prayer at the end of this story. So here in verse 13 of chapter 4, it says this. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, not Ruth, they said this to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So just real quick there for a minute. Remember how life seemed destitute without her sons. She had no hope whatsoever. The women, the same women who, who were looking at how bitter Naomi was when she came back said, said, your daughter-in-law, who you thought was worthless, who you, who you really wanted to just go away for her sake, your daughter-in-law has been better to you than seven sons. Right? An incredible, incredible claim at this point in time. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. So Naomi finds herself completely full, right? She's been given a daughter-in-law who's better than seven sons. She's been given an heir. She's been given a protector. She has been redeemed. She has been full. The prayer that she prayed, the agony that she went through has been answered. And it's just a beautiful way to end that story. So real quick, before we go into section three on this, does anyone have any questions on that genealogy? Kind of what that meant. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Whenever you read the Bible and you just really critically read the Bible, 
what you'll be amazed by is just how consistent it is. And when you dig into it deeper and deeper and deeper, what you find is, is, is that this could not be written by man. There's just no way all this stuff could work out the way it does in such intricate detail with layer after layer after layer, just the little pieces we've put together over the last couple of months. That could not be done by man. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to just allow you to trust uh, in the promises of God. So I want to do this with Section 3, and I want to give you guys time at your tables to really talk this through. But, but one thing that some of, some, some of us talk about at church at times is that we want to make sure that every single person who is part of Crossings uh, can, can make sure they really understand the gospel. Uh, if you kind of think about Christianity 101, we have to be able to be able to articulate the gospel, share the gospel, uh, be able to make sure we've, con- we've been consumed by it, we live it. Uh, but a lot of times if, if you ask people, what is the gospel, they'll say they know, but they really don't know. Uh, it's kind of one of those words that can be thrown around a lot in church, and you just go a long time in church, and you don't actually sit down and go, let me make sure I actually understand this stuff. So what I did here is I broke down three portions of the gospel, just kind of broke it into chunks, uh, that I wanted to make sure we really all could articulate. And what I want you to do at your tables is well, I want to take these one at a time, and we'll break in between them and just talk about them a little bit. I want you to say, okay, for this portion of the gospel, where do I see this play through in the overall story of Ruth and Boaz that we've seen? So if I just kind of go through these three portions of the gospel real fast, very first portion we have to understand is that our sin has separated us from God, and the consequence of that sin is death. We are hopeless without him. We are unable to save ourselves. If we, don't get, if we don't actually understand that part of the gospel, we really can't move on. We have to understand our own depravity and the hopelessness that comes from our own situation. Second part of the gospel is this. By God's grace, although we were sinners, Christ came and died for us, paying the price for our sin. And then third, death, though, could not even overcome him. And on the third day he rose, he conquered death, and he brings life for all that put their faith in him. If you can't your tables, just take question one for a few minutes. And I want you to think to yourself, talk, talk, talk it out. No wrong answers here. Or if there is a wrong answer, I'll correct you. Um, Talk about it and just say, okay, where in the story of Ruth do you see section one here playing out? And and it's not always going to be chronological in the story, but just where do you see different aspects of that section one playing out in the story of Ruth? Talk about that, and we'll come back here in a few minutes. All right, come back together here. Any thoughts on this? Where where in the book of Ruth uh, do we see? Yep. This is kind of far-fledged, but I kind of see Naomi as being like a Christ type. Yeah, I might disagree with that one. I believe in you. I go where you go. Yeah. I sleep where you sleep, and I'll die where you die. Yeah. I... When we follow Christ, he says, deny yourself, take your Okay. That makes me feel better after you explained it. So, so, so I think, I think I, I would, the way I would say that in slightly different words is that just like we are meant to be imitators of Christ so that when people follow us, they get to Christ, Ruth had to hear the word from somebody. Right? Who did Ruth hear the word from? It was probably Naomi. That's why she felt compelled to follow her the way they did. You know, the gospel is meant to be spoken. Right? The gospel is meant to be spread. It, you know, the word of God is where the power is. We talked about that whenever we studied Philippians. It's not in the messenger. The power is in the word. So before we get to any of this of the gospel, there's, a, there's an assumption here that Naomi has, has 
provided the word to Ruth to give her the opportunity to respond to it. So, yeah, any other thoughts on this before I kind of fill in the, the blanks? Any thoughts on section one? Yeah, Chris? We were talking about when, when the tragedy happened, when the sons died, that yeah. caused a divide between Naomi and Ruth and their people or, you know. Yeah. I think we actually see death play out, right? I mean, in, in that, in, in graphic detail. But you think about this. Sin has separated us from God. And there's two things in this story of Ruth I, I would say to make sure you see in the sin has separated us from God. First one is the fact that Ruth herself is a foreigner. She is, she is not partaking in the blessings of God. This is almost a physical demonstration there that, that she is not a child of God when this story begins. She is not of the people of Israel. She has you know, not gone through that. She has been separated from the people. You know, God's people are meant to be holy and set apart. You know, she is completely separate. And we see that, that in this, you have the Ruth who was always separate, always a foreigner. And then you have God's people in Naomi and Elimelech and the sons who leave the promised land and they flee to a place that is not of God, right? It is not the, the promised land that God has given them. And, it, and, and remember back in the very first lesson we did, not everyone from Bethlehem is fleeing, right? Most of the town is staying, staying behind and weather the storm and, and trust in the promises of God. They flee, right? And you just see death and everything come as you separate yourself from God. Just a, a graphic representation there. Can I give you my revision? I look at it as Elimelech had lost faith when they had the family. Yeah. And Boaz stayed there. Everybody else stayed there. Yeah, and that's what I think. So you think about that. They, they turned. They had no God before me. So you know when they were in Moab, they must have worshipped the, the, the Moab gods. Yeah, and I, I don't want to. I don't want to put things that aren't in the Bible. But I think I think there's something there to say that 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 Elimelech probably did. He didn't lead his family well through this, right? So, well, hold yeah. We'll, we'll we'll keep going. We'll keep going. We'll keep going. So. So, and then it says this, we are hopeless without him, unable to save ourselves, right? If you think about this, we are hopeless without him. Think about the despair that Naomi and Ruth feel as they are turning themselves back to God, right? As, as they're going back to Bethlehem, they are completely empty, completely hope, hopeless. Think about how Naomi feels so bitter uh, as she comes back, just an absolute agony and, and unable to save ourselves. The, the Redeemer could not be them. Yep. I think we need to be careful to make the statement that they left God and worshiped God to yeah. Moab. Yeah. Because, well, no, I'm saying we've got to be careful not to. Yeah. Because we actually don't know that. They were there 10 years. Well, hold on, hold on. Let's, let's, we, we're out of time. So I think to your point, to your point, Naomi, Naomi, this situation, it is clear that she has communicated who the God of Israel is to Ruth because Ruth responds. Your God be my God. So I don't think in this situation, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's more likely that Naomi does not worship another God. Anyway, so, so, but I want you to see this. All these characters play out in the beginning. We're unable to save ourselves. The consequence of sin is death. That's part of the gospel we have to know. Second portion is this. By God's grace, although we were sinners, Christ came and died for us, paying the price for our sin. So, so if I, if, I, if I just kind of give you a hint on this one, right? I want you to think about Boaz in this example. Talk for just a minute at your tables about Boaz. But by God's grace, although we were sinners, Christ came and died for us, paying the price for our sin. Wrap that up just a little bit at your tables, and we'll, we'll come right back. All right, so bringing this back up here. So by God's grace, although we were sinners, Christ came and died for us, paying the price for our sin. So if you kind of, if you kind of think about this, what I hope you got to at your tables is that in this situation, 
Boaz is the Christ figure. We've talked about that a lot. It was by his grace that whenever he saw there in the fields where, where Ruth was gleaning in the fields, that he said not only is she to be protected, but she's be, to be brought into our community. She's to be provided more than she needs today. She's, she's to be given a meal. Uh, you're not allowed to touch her. Send her home with a month and a half worth of barley. Uh, and then also bring her back and allow her to do this every single day for the next couple of months during the harvest, Right. And, and we see his grace come through very, very clearly, providing more than what she needed, more than she even understood uh, that she needed in a way that only a worthy man could. And if we go through all the Bible, what we'll find is that there was really only one worthy man in the Bible. The rest of us are all flawed. The rest of us are corrupted. You know, the best example that we can point to in the Bible, you know, outside Christ is David, and he killed a lot of people. Uh, you know, he had an affair. He, you know, as, as Marty always says, we wouldn't let him teach Sunday school class in our church, right? So you just, you look at this, there was one that was good. And we're trying to learn from Boaz what what that really looks like, what uh, the grace of God actually looks like. And then whenever he came, whenever he engages with Ruth, he promises her redemption. And he goes, even though you cannot pay the price, even though they are not willing to pay the price, I love you in such a way that I am willing to pay the price for you. I want you to always keep that in mind as you remember in this story. And then lastly, on point three, it says this, Death could not overcome him. On the third day, Christ rose, conquering death, and he brings life for all that put their faith in him. I want to talk about two passages in this last section real fast. So the first one is this, conquering death and bringing life for all. So I just want you to, to end this story, remember the hopelessness and despair and the depths of which Naomi and Ruth were both in, and then how the story ends. The, the story ends with Naomi being full, with Ruth being redeemed. You see where they were in death, they are now new creations in life. And it all occurs... Naomi never loses faith in her God. Even though she had strayed, she does not lose faith in her God from everything we can understand uh, in this. Even the way she agonizes her prayer of lament, it shows that she has not lost faith in her God. She knows he's a God of power and a God of love. She just doesn't understand exactly why this is all happening to her. But she never lost faith. But what we really see here is this last point that God brings life to all that put their faith in him. I want you to never forget what happens to Ruth on the road to Bethlehem, right? I will go where you will go. I will go to your people. Your God will be my God. I want you to always remember how Ruth died to herself on that day and that on that road to Bethlehem because Everything about the world was telling her to go back to Moab, go back to her own security, go back and find a man, go back and get married and live your life, you know, worshiping the gods of Moab. But she said, even though I don't know where this is going to go, even though I don't know what's in it for me, even though I don't, you know, understand whether or not I'm going to be secure, whether or not I'm going to be loved, what's going to happen... I am going to follow your God. And she didn't stop at that commitment. When she got to Bethlehem, the next morning she went and she obeyed the laws of that God by going and gleaning in the field. And instead of going after a young Bethlehem man uh, who happened to worship the God of Israel, she said, no, 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 the laws of your God say that I should go after my Redeemer in my clan. That, that, That Redeemer is Boaz. So she goes to the older man looking to be redeemed, being obedient to her her God, showing her faithfulness to her new God of Israel, 
right? New life comes from this entire situation, but it doesn't come unless we put our faith in Christ. Ruth, Ruth does not get to experience this new life without the grace of Boaz, but also without putting her faith in the God of Boaz, right? I want you to always be able to mimic this story, replay the story of Ruth in your head as you're telling people about the gospel. Have people read the book of Ruth and then go through it with them, just like we've gone through this today. Because what you'll find is if God was a God loving enough to give us this story 1,100 years before Christ, he knew what was going to happen, and we can, we can lean on the promises of God of what's going to happen tomorrow, Ten days from now, five years ago, even that day that we're on our deathbed, we can count on the promises because it's been so consistent all throughout. So I want to end on this today. We started with Scott Sandbar's poem on the book of Ruth, and I thought it would be a good thing to end on. And I hope this poem means a little bit more to you today than it did when we started out five weeks ago. We'll end on this, and I'll pray, and we'll get out of here. It says this, The gift redeemed. Ruth gave a gift standing tall the gift of herself to her mother-in-law. In In a far-off land, Naomi lost it all, her husbands, her sons, a tremendous fall. Returning to Judah, God's beloved land, they both came home to sweet Bethlehem. Ruth did glean in Boaz's wheat, desperate widows needing food to eat. But Boaz knew of Naomi and Ruth, that pure in heart they live God's truth. With no hope ahead, a redeemer came to give them succor forever name. Ruth bore a son that Naomi did feed. Through line of David, Christ was her seed. Ruth and Boaz, a gift of light, redeemed redeemer, banishing the night. A gentlewoman, a goodly wife, her small role did play, bringing all true life. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for these men again, and I thank you for this story of Ruth. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that you've implanted it all in our hearts. I thank you that each man here has responded to your word that we can trust in your promises. The promise you, get, you give us today that we can experience the joy of you no matter what we're going through. And I know so many men in here are going through some really difficult times, but we can experience your joy and your peace. But we also lean in on the promise that one day when everything has been taken from us, you will redeem us to, your, to, to you, that, that we will live an everlasting life because we have already been redeemed by you. We thank you for the ability to have faith in you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the story that's told us how it's all going to play out. We love you, Lord. May you increase our faith each and every day so that we may be for your kingdom and your world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.